Well, the reading is taken from John's Gospel. John, John chapter 11. So John chapter 11, and I'll read verses 1 to 27. Now a certain man was ill, Lazarus of Bethany, the village of Mary and her sister Martha. It was Mary who anointed the Lord with ointment and wiped his feet with her hair, whose brother Lazarus was ill. So the sisters sent to him, saying, Lord, he whom you love is ill. But when Jesus heard it, he said, This illness does not lead to death. It is for the glory of God, so that the Son of God may be glorified through it. Now Jesus loved Martha and her sister and Lazarus. So when he heard that Lazarus was ill, he stayed two days longer in the place where he was. Then after this, he said to the disciples, let us go to Judea again. The disciples said to him, Rabbi, the Jews were just now seeking to stone you. And are you going there again? Jesus answered, are there not 12 hours in the day? If anyone walks in the day, he does not stumble because he, he sees the light of this world. But if anyone walks in the night, he stumbles, because the light is not in him. After saying these things, he said to them, Our friend Lazarus has fallen asleep, but I go to awaken him. The disciples said to him, Lord, if he has fallen asleep, he will recover. Now Jesus had spoken of his death, but they thought, he meant taking rest in sleep. Then Jesus told them plainly, Lazarus has died, and for your sake I am glad that I was not there so that you may believe, but let us go to him. So Thomas, called the twin, said to his fellow disciples, let us also go that we may die with him. Now when Jesus came, he found that Lazarus had already been in the tomb for days. Bethany was near Jerusalem, about two miles off, and many of the Jews had come to Martha and Mary to console them concerning their brother. So when Martha heard that Jesus was coming, she went and met him, but Mary remained seated in the house. Martha said to Jesus, Lord, if you had been here, my brother would not have died. But even now I know that whatever you ask from God, God will give you. Jesus said to her, Your brother will rise again. Martha said to him, I know that he will rise again in the resurrection on the last day. Jesus said to her, I am the resurrection and the life. Whoever believes in me, though he die, yet shall he live. And everyone who lives and believes in me shall never die. 
do you believe this? She said to him, yes, Lord, I believe that you are the Christ, the Son of God, who is coming into the world. Well, in John chapter 11 and verse 25, we've read those words of the Lord Jesus, very well-known words, one of the seven I am statements of the Lord Jesus in John's gospel. Jesus said, I am the resurrection and the life. He who believes in me, though he may die, he shall live. I am the resurrection and the life. It is somewhat ironic, don't you think, that the Lord Jesus is here about to raise Lazarus from the dead, and yet it is because, it will be because he has raised Lazarus from the dead that Jesus himself will be put to death. This is the miracle, in a sense, that sets off the chain of events that will lead to his crucifixion. We see that later in verses 49 to 53, when Caiaphas, the high priest, tells the religious leaders that Jesus must be killed. He makes that very clear. And in verse 53, that we're told that from that day, from this day on, they make plans to put Jesus to death. So strange, isn't it? That in giving life to a man who is dead, Jesus is hastening his own death. But thankfully, in these words, there is also a prophecy concerning the resurrection of our Lord Jesus Christ. So what are we to learn from this text? There are five truths that I want to bring out from this text. First of all, number one, notice that there is a realization here. A realization The reality of death and bereavement is fairly obvious here. Jesus makes it clear that this is inevitable. Unless the Lord Jesus returns before we die, unless the Lord Jesus returns while we're still alive, and that, of course, is possible, um, unless that happens, it is a fact that every single one of us will die. A moment will come when my heart will stop beating. Um, A moment will come when your heart will stop beating, when your brain will no longer function, when your soul will leave your body. And that will be true. That is true for you and that is true for me, for every single one of us present here this morning. Another thing that is inevitable is that we also face the loss of others as well. It's not just our own death, but also it is a realization that all of us will at some point face bereavement. All of us at some point will find ourselves standing beside the grave of a loved one or watching as the curtain closes around the coffin. Many of us have already faced that. Some of us have faced that many times. Someone here today perhaps has faced that very recently very painfully. Some of you may have faced that more painfully than others, although I'm not sure that we can, I'm not sure that you can grade grief, can you? 
But I know, and you know, that it's not, a, it's not exactly a popular subject. It's not a great starting place, is it, for a sermon? We're all going to die. You know, we, we live in an age when... Uh, we live in an age when we want to make death appear something less serious than it really is, less ugly than it really is, less brutal than it really is. So if, if somebody happens to raise the subject of death at a dinner party or, um, or you know, on a social occasion, then invariably it's going to be in the context of a joke because we, we don't like to, to think about that. And, uh, and even the media, of course, you know, if you watch the news, which inevitably is filled with stories of death and so on, that if you, uh, for example, news at 10, uh, you'll find invariably that it always has to end on a cute or the funny story, doesn't it? Uh, you find that the news, whatever channel, but in, invariably you find that the news always has to end with a... You know, it's the, the tiger cubs that are born, at, born in London Zoo, a, a, a tiger that's given birth in London Zoo, or some kind of cute or funny story. Because, of course, they're not just reporting the news, they're also selling the news, aren't they? And they want you the next evening. The fact is, is that death is an ugly reality that confronts every one of us every single day. And it's ugly because death is an unwanted reality that came into the world because of sin. The wages of sin, as you know, is death. So death is a stranger. It is an intruder. It was never meant to be here. And that is why we don't like it, because we don't understand it. And somehow we are hardwired to understand that it was never meant to be here. But there is a sense in which, here in this chapter, death represents all the troubles that we face. Death is the ultimate catch-all for a, a fallen world. It is, uh, death in a sense represents what it means to live in a broken and fallen world. Uh, all the problems that we face in a sense are captured by this. Whether it's a breakdown in health, the loss of a job, a child going astray and breaking our hearts, a relationship falling apart, there is a sense in which death represents the troubles that we face living in a, a fallen world. And no matter how much false religion and the cults and the world offers to try and help us forget, the fact is that we can't. You know, the Apostle Paul writing to Romans, Romans chapter 8, verse 18, you know that Paul says, and I consider that the sufferings of this present time, in other words, this present age, from the first, from the beginning until the second coming of Christ, this present era, if you like, the sufferings of this present age are not worthy to be compared with the glory which shall be revealed in us uh, through the Lord Jesus Christ, as those that trust in him. The fact is, is that these are the troubles that mark this present age in which we live. And you remember a little later on in John's Gospel, the Lord Jesus will say to his disciples that in this world we will have tribulation. It's inevitable because we live in a fallen world. And so we find that uh, if we've not discovered, not, not found this to be so already, that death is inevitable. And how much, no matter how much we try not to think about it, we must be realistic. There is a realization. These things will come. But 
Secondly, notice secondly that not only is there a realization here, but also there is a hesitation. You see, if we turn our thoughts for a moment towards Martha, in the Gospels we see Martha and her sister Mary, and they're very different personalities, aren't they? Uh, that comes through very, very clearly. Mary is the one who is found sitting at the feet of Jesus. Martha is the one who is frantically <clears throat> running around the kitchen, you know, thinking to herself, I'd love to sit at the feet of Jesus, but somebody's got to cook the dinner. You know. They're very different. Martha is much more practical. Uh, she's more concerned to deal with issues, and I think that becomes apparent in the account here as well. Martha is grieving. Her faith is being tested in the face of a crisis. Her brother, Lazarus, is close to death. She and her sister Mary send a message to the Lord Jesus. The words, actually, the, the message that Martha sends, it's almost a perfect prayer. She simply, verse 3, she simply sends a message to the Lord Jesus, Lord, behold, he whom you love is sick. It's so simple, it is so honest, it is so direct. They're not telling, they're not attempting to tell the Lord Jesus what he should do, but in a lovely way, they simply present their request to him and leave it in his hands. Obviously, they hope that the Lord Jesus will come immediately, heal their brother Lazarus, and that he will be well again. But instead, we're told in verse 6 that Jesus, when he gets the message, deliberately stays two days longer in the place where he was instead of coming to, 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 to heal Lazarus. Now, we know that the Lord Jesus always has good reasons for his delays. When he doesn't immediately answer our request or, or answer in the way that we would hope, he always has wise reasons, even if we don't understand, even if we can't see what those reasons are. At this point, Martha can't understand all she knows is that she has told the Lord Jesus, and yet he hasn't come. That's all she knows. I think in verse 21, I think maybe there is more than a hint of disappointment and bewilderment in her voice. Maybe a hint actually of bitterness. And Martha says to the Lord Jesus in verse 21, Lord, if you had been here, my brother wouldn't have died. Lord, if you'd been here, it wouldn't have happened. She can't understand why he didn't come. She can't understand why he had not been there. Now, without speculating, I suppose we could say that if, if Lazarus was so close to death, if it were the equivalent of a day's journey to convey the message to the Lord Jesus and a, a, a further day's journey for him to come back again, then the fact that he was, by the time the Lord Jesus does stay two days longer and arrives and he's been dead four days, then it doesn't take too much to work out that probably Lazarus was at the point of death at the time. Maybe the Lord Jesus simply knew that he was literally within seconds of dying. Who knows? We can't really speculate. But, you know, what, what really does strike me is this. How, how many times Martha and Mary must have said to each other, if only, Lord, if, if only he had been here. 
If only Jesus had come, things would have been so different. If only he had come, why didn't he come? I don't understand. If only, if only. Friends, if I could tell you the number of times in a pastoral situation, at a bereavement, when I've heard somebody say, but if only. I can can think personally. If only at midnight I hadn't driven past the hospital. If only at midnight I'd gone to the hospital. Then I would have seen my father before he died at six o'clock the next morning. If only. If only only my mother had not died on a weekend when there were less nursing staff. If, If only they'd been able to send an ambulance for my brother. How often we hear those words. Isn't it true that so often at a time of loss, we can, we add, we compound our troubles in a sense by plaguing ourselves with questions about what did or what didn't happen and how things could have been so very different. I prayed about it, yet the Lord didn't seem to answer. And I think at the root of it, really, what we are saying is, but Lord, we're asking the Lord Jesus, Lord, don't you even care? So Martha, I'm persuaded, is a real believer, but her faith is a weak faith. It's a hesitant faith. There's a note of hesitancy here. She does believe in the power of God, but she believes that maybe his power is somewhat limited, somehow limited. On the one hand, she can say in verses 21 and 22, Lord, if you'd been here, my brother would not have died. But even now I know that whatever you ask of God, God will give you. She says that she knows that the Lord Jesus can ask of the Father and it will be done. But clearly in her mind, it doesn't include raising Lazarus from the dead. Because as far as she's concerned, Lazarus is dead, he's died, and that's the end of it. You find the same thing, verse 23. The Lord Jesus says to her, your brother will rise again. And Martha says to him in verse 24, I know that he will rise again in the resurrection at the last day. It sounds like she's reciting a catechism, doesn't it? I know that he will rise again at the resurrection of the last day. She believes the promise in general. She believes that there will one day be a general resurrection at the end of the world and that her brother will rise on that day when Christ returns and raises everyone from the dead and for the judgment to come. She believes the promise in general, but she finds it so hard to apply it to her own situation in particular. In general, she believes that it's true one day in the future, but she doesn't believe that it applies to her situation right now in her loss. Don't we all do that sometimes? Don't we? Don't we often do that in our own situations? We believe in God's promises. We can repeat them. We can quote God's promises in general. And we believe that we can quote God's promises to others for their help and for their encouragement. But when it comes to our own situation, right now, right here in our predicament, we find it so difficult. 
How easily and how glibly we can quote Romans 8 verse 28 to others in their distress. We know that God works all things together for good to those that love him, to those who are the called according to his purpose. We can quote that promise to other people passing through difficult times, and yet when we ourselves are going through troubles and perplexities and difficulties, how slow we are to believe it's true for ourselves. And we say to ourselves, well, I believe this is true for everybody else, but it can't apply to me in my situation. So, for example, in in other respects, um, the forgiveness of sins. We we believe and we know and believe that the Lord Jesus Christ died upon Calvary's cross to to forgive all our sins and, and to clothe us with his righteousness. But he died for the forgiveness of all our sins upon the cross. And we can quote that to other people. And yet, how many believers struggle with the subject of with assurance, how many believers struggle with that with that truth for themselves? I can believe it's true for everybody else, but I can't believe it's true for me. For me, for the things that I've done, and for the thoughts that I have, for the kind of person that I know that I am. On the subject of guidance, I believe that God will guide everybody else, but in my situation, when I need to know God's when I need to know how God is guiding me, leading me in in my current situation, I find it so hard to believe that he's going to guide me. I think actually, I think that we can identify with Martha and her hesitant faith. She believes and yet she's hesitant. I wonder if that's your experience, if we're really honest. So there's a hesitation. Thirdly, notice... There's a a confirmation here, a confirmation. See, the Lord Jesus is so kind in his dealings with Martha. He doesn't rebuke her for her weak and stumbling faith. He loves her. He understands her. Instead of scolding her, chastising her for her weak or lack of faith, instead he gives her... He responds to her in her need, and he gives her a powerful confirmation. Verse 25, he turns to her and he says, Martha, I am the resurrection. You see, the resurrection isn't uh, just an idea. It's not just a doctrine. It's not just a philosophy, a concept that we're supposed to believe. It is a truth that is embodied in a person the person of our Lord Jesus Christ, the Son of the living God. He is saying, Martha, I am the resurrection, and you're staring into the face of the one who is the resurrection himself. Your faith isn't simply in something that will happen one day. Your faith, Martha, is in me, in the one who is the resurrection and the life to come. He is the one in whom the resurrection is and this life is to be found. He is, the, he is God. He is the one who will cause the dead to live again. And in fact, there are hints of that. It's a theme you find throughout John's Gospel, at the very beginning of John's Gospel. Remember, in the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and so on. And in him, in him was life, and the life was the light of man. And now it comes home so powerfully in this situation. When Jesus turns to Martha and he says, Martha, I am the resurrection and the life. 
Here is Jesus surrounded by, by death and dying people in a dying world. But he is reminding us he is the conqueror. He is the one who has defeated death. He is the one who soon will die and rise again. Having gone into the grave, gone into death and defeated it from the inside. In him the grave has been defeated so that with the Apostle Paul we can say death is swallowed up. Not just overcome mind, not just covered over. Death is swallowed up in victory. Oh death, where is your sting? Oh Hades, where is your victory? Number four, notice. Fourthly, there is an application here. The point is, you see, we can argue from the greater to the lesser. And we can say that if Jesus has defeated death, then he has defeated everything. He has defeat, if he has defeated death, which sums up what it is to live in a fallen world, the last enemy. If Christ has defeated the last enemy, then he has defeated every trial, every loss, every tribulation, every heartache, every sorrow. For Jesus lives. He has conquered death. And if that is the case, then we can look away from our troubles to him and now see that every tribulation, every trial, every sorrow that we face now lies vanquished, conquered at his feet. He is over them all. That's what we have to remember and be reminded of, I think, perhaps, again, afresh this morning. So there is something dynamic. There's nothing static. It's not just some dry doctrine, wonderful doctrine. It is not just a dry doctrine, but there is something dynamic about these words. When he says, I am the resurrection... He isn't saying something lifeless, but he's talking about that life being in himself. He's telling us about himself living and active and dynamic and practical. It's like when uh, the Bible says, when John, the Apostle John says that God is love. It doesn't mean that there is this static doctrine, you know, that God is love and, and so on. It's just one attribute of God to be admired, but rather that there is an outflowing eternally from the heart of God. Something dynamic. It's the same here. I am the resurrection. He is the one out of whom life goes eternally. And invariably in John's gospel, these statements are linked with the miracles that he performs as well to show that this is something living and dynamic. So that, for example, when Jesus says, I am the bread of life, he feeds 5,000 hungry people. When he says, I am the light of the world, he causes a man born blind to see again. When he says, I am the resurrection and the life, he isn't just simply telling us something about his character, but he is the one, he is telling us that he is the one who will actually give resurrection life to those that believe in him and actually raise from the dead those who die believing in Jesus Christ. So when he says, I am the resurrection and the life, it is a promise and a guarantee that he will do exactly what he describes himself to be. He gives everlasting life. He will raise the dead. All those that die believing in Christ shall live again. Friends, what a, a practical 
application this is. Isn't this the most marvelous word of application for us? This isn't some abstract theological concept, but a powerful living reality for us as the children of God. It's not just some quality that lies hidden within Jesus for theologians to discuss and debate, but a living reality for every one of us as God's people, as believers. So when he says, I'm the resurrection, he is saying, I am the resurrection for you, you personally, this morning. He is, for you, the resurrection. Jesus says to her, I am the resurrection and the life. He who believes in me, though he may die, he shall live. And whoever lives and believes in me shall never die. Do you believe this? So the promise here is that whoever believes in him, though they were spiritually dead, immediately receive new spiritual life here and now. And when they physically die, their souls will immediately go into the presence of the Lord Jesus Christ. No waiting room, no soul's sleep. But our souls go immediately into the very presence of the Lord Jesus Christ and one day to be reunited with physical, new physical bodies when Christ comes again. Bodies sown in weakness and humiliation, but raised in power and glory. Why can he assure us of this? Because the moment, I'll tell you why he can assure us of these things. Because of the reality that the moment that you believe upon the Lord Jesus Christ, by faith you're united with him. That's the truth. How wonderful the doctrine of union with Christ is. You're brought into union with the Lord Jesus Christ. And if Christ has been risen, if Christ has been raised from the dead, if Jesus is risen, then you're already seated with him in heavenly places and one day will rise again, physically. I am the resurrection and the life. He who believes in me, though he may die, he shall live. What, what a difference it makes to those, for those who face death. Those facing bereavement, the loss of loved ones. What a difference it makes for those who face death believing in the Lord Jesus Christ. I suppose we could give so many examples, couldn't we? Even kind of from the scriptures. Biblical examples that we could quote. The Apostle Paul. So the Apostle Paul is in prison. He does know whether he's going to live or die. William Shakespeare, when... I'm not sure, probably some English literature expert here will put me right. But was he contemplating suicide when William Shakespeare penned those words? To be or not to be, that is a question. Was he, he describes death as some, as a distant traveler or some unknown born or something. But William Shakespeare, to, to die, he says to be or not to be. Whether, is it better to live or die? I don't know. Contrast that with the Apostle Paul. Doesn't know whether he's going to live or die. He's in prison. Thinks possibly he could be on death row. He's not sure. But he writes, for me to live is Christ, to die is gain. That's the difference. That's the difference it makes being a believer in the Lord Jesus Christ. That's the difference that knowing the Lord Jesus Christ makes. I am the resurrection and the life. He who believes in me, though he may die, he shall live.
So there's an application here. That's the outcome, the difference it makes to our lives knowing him. I don't know whether any of you have read any of the books by uh, G.I. Williamson, uh, American Presbyterian minister. He wrote, uh, if you've ever read, I warmly commend them to you, his two volumes on the Shorter Catechism. Um, And also he's written on the, um, he's got a commentary on the Westminster Confession. And um, he was 50 years faithfully in ministry, serving the Lord as a Presbyterian minister. And uh, in 2003, he retired from the pastorate after he decided that he would retire after 50 years in ministry. And he was interviewed by a Christian magazine. I just, not long ago, I saw this. I happened to come across this. Um, And the previous year, the year before he retired, so he retires in 2003, but 2002, his daughter died of uh, a combination of pulmonary fibrosis and cancer. And it had been her wish that her father would take her funeral service. She was a believer. And, uh, and so the following year, he was interviewed about that and asked, you know, wasn't it difficult to take the, the funeral of your own daughter? And he, he, wrote, he said this in the newspaper article I read. said, she wanted me to conduct her funeral, and I certainly considered it an honor that she asked. It was very difficult to contemplate beforehand, yet when the time came, it was not difficult at all. The words just flowed once I started to preach. Her concern, as well as mine, was to remind the Lord's people that our salvation is every bit as much about the body as it is about the soul. Why, he says, the Westminster Shortland Catechism sums it up most wonderfully. Answer to question 37. The souls of believers are at their death made perfect in holiness and do immediately pass into glory and their bodies being still united to Christ do rest in their graves till the resurrection. Isn't that wonderful to know that we will sleep in Jesus, we will still be in union with Christ when we die and we will be raised again. You see the difference that the resurrection makes for us. So there's a realization, the reality of death. There's a hesitation. Her faith, Martha's faith, is real, but it's weak. There's a confirmation. Jesus stoops to her weakness of faith by reminding her that he is the resurrection. And then there's an application to our lives. And then finally, I think here, finally, we can't end without at least recognizing that there is an invitation here. The Lord Jesus goes to look Martha goes on to look Martha straight in the face, and he asks her directly, do you believe this? It is a personal invitation. She knows the truth. She does believe that Jesus is able to raise the dead. And so he invites her personally to trust him, as though he is saying to her, but Martha, do you believe this for yourself? Do you believe this for yourself? Do you believe that this is true for you personally? Do you? Never mind about whether it's true for somebody else. Never mind whether it's true for your husband or your wife or your parents or your children or or somebody else or your friends or somebody else that you come to church with. What about you? Do you believe this? It's a personal invitation and what a response she gives 
verse 27, one of the great confessions of faith in the Bible. Verse 27, Yes, Lord, I believe that you are the Christ, the Son of God who is to come into the world. What a magnificent confession. She doesn't understand everything. She doesn't have a profound understanding. But this much she knows. She knows who Jesus is. And she believes in him. Friends, this morning, I believe that the Lord Jesus would ask you personally this morning, do you believe this? Do you? Every single one of us has to answer that question for ourselves. There is only a, there is a yes or there is a no. There is nothing in between. There is no such thing as an abstention. There is no neutral position. Either you believe what Jesus says or you don't. Either you receive the Lord Jesus Christ or you reject him. It must be one or the other. The scriptures are very clear. He who has the Son has life. He who does not have the Son of God does not have life. And for someone this morning, maybe the challenge is simply to believe that Jesus is who he claims to be. Because you've never personally come to trust him as your Lord and Savior. And so to you he asks, I am the resurrection and the life. He who believes in me, though he may die, he shall live. Whoever lives and believes in me shall never die. But do you believe this? For most of us, I'm sure the overwhelming majority, even though I don't know you as a congregation, I'm probably, I'm, I'm guessing that probably the majority of us here are believers this morning. But maybe not everyone. Maybe not all of us. For the majority of us as believers this morning, Jesus reminds us that he is the one who brings life out of death. He is the one who brings something so infinitely good out of something so terribly awful, terribly bad. For you, it may be something else. Maybe for you, as a believer, there's something else. Maybe it's some, some other area in your life where you're finding it difficult to trust the Lord Jesus Christ, some area in your life where you're battling, where you're struggling. Some, maybe there is some area in your life where you feel that you're fighting a losing battle, a particular problem that you're wrestling with, a situation, a person, maybe completely unknown to everybody else, but a difficult situation, a temptation, maybe, that gets the better of you every single time. And you feel, well, what's the point? You feel like giving up. And in that area of your life that is so difficult, the Lord Jesus Christ reminds us that if he is the resurrection and the life, he, why he is able to do exceedingly abundantly above all that you can ask or even think. If he can bring something so infinitely good out of some, something so painful and so awful, then maybe to you in your situation, he, needs to, he reminds you that he is the resurrection and the life. Do you really believe that Jesus is who he claims to be? If so, if so, in your situation. The only response has to be the response of Martha. Yes, Lord, I believe that you are the Christ, the Son of God, who has come into the world.